All right, welcome everyone to Dan and Jay's Sports Show. As always, I'm Dan. And I'm Jay. All right, Jay. Uh, switching over to NFL now. Uh, of course, the biggest story in the NFL, in a lot of ways, has been just as big of a story as the two-way injury in college football. Is of course uh, Miles Garrett's vicious attack of Mason Rudolph, where he ripped off his helmet and then struck him with his own helmet. So, Joe, what are your overarching thoughts about what I personally believe to be first-degree assault with a deadly weapon? Well, it's just uh, very uh, disturbing, you know, to see that type of uh, behavior. Um, you know, I know that football is a violent game, but, you know, that was just uh, the type of behavior that just takes it to another stratosphere as far as violence. You know, it looks like just a clear intent to, you know, just almost, almost kill somebody. And um, it, it was very troubling. Um, you know, I understand that um, Garrett had an issue with, um, you know, how Mason Rudolph acted, but still, I felt like when you watch the play develop, if you look at um, the point in the game where they were, there was only eight seconds remaining. The Browns were ahead 21-7. This was a clear win for the Browns. They were going to get some momentum, getting a huge divisional win. And you see Garrett inexplicably decide to try to sack um, Rudolph at that point in the game based on the circumstances. And after Rudolph had already thrown the ball, Garrett shoves it. And so I felt like that sparked the animosity between them. And then Garrett just took it to an unjustifiable level after that. Well, that's right, Joe. I mean, the Browns are winning. They're winning 21 to 7 at this point. Rudolph's thrown four interceptions. I mean, it was, what, like 10 seconds left in the game? And not only does he hit him, he drops him into the ground. And so I don't blame Mason Rudolph for being upset about that. I mean, he said it. It was Bush League, and it was. And it just it made no sense. And it just kind of contributes to this overarching narrative about the Browns being an undisciplined team. Because what's shocking about it is Miles Garrett, even from his days at A&M, always seemed like such a calm, collected, you know, workmanlike player. It seems like he was a guy that went and did his job. You know, he killed him in the weight room and would, you know, play great on Saturdays and Sundays with a lot of hard work. But you never saw him as a guy that jawed a lot, talked a lot of trash. It's, this was a very weird incident, but I don't care who it is. I mean, you don't get second chances from this, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it was surprising, too, because um, as you alluded to, um, him being, you know, kind of a soft-spoken guy and kind of goes about his business, you know, much like you would say like a Michael Thomas or a Larry Fitzgerald, um, you know, just kind of surprised you to see him uh, capable of this type of behavior. I don't even remember previously ever watching a Miles Garrett interview, maybe at the draft a couple of years ago, but just not, you know, a guy that you hear say a lot. And, um, you know, I hope the best for him as far as, you know, um, I hope that he can, um, you know, get back on track as far as his life. But as far as playing in the NFL, you know, and the consequences that come from, from this, he definitely, you know, needs uh, – they definitely set an example with, uh, you know, not tolerating anything, you know, like this. Well, so, so here's the thing, Joe. You suspend Vontez Burfecht for an entire season because of a hit. And I understand that he has a history with it. 
But the bottom line is if you're trying to make this league safer, which is what they say they're doing, then you should kick a guy out of the league for doing something that can kill somebody. What Burbank did couldn't actually kill somebody. What he did with all of the strength that Miles Garrett has, and that was one of the reasons he got taken number one overall, is the guy is, is, a, is a freak when it comes to his, his strength. Him being able to catch somebody squarely with that helmet swing could actually kill him. And so that being the case, I don't care if he's been a nice reserve guy in the past. you got to forbid him from ever playing in the NFL again. And if I was Rudolph, I actually would consider it criminal charges, and I definitely would go civilly for it. Because I think that's the most, that is the most easy lawsuit you've ever had right there because Garrett will settle that thing in a heartbeat because he would get nailed because the punitive damages would be out the waz on that. Right, absolutely. And I was stunned, quite frankly, to hear that apparently uh, the attorney for Rudolph uh, voiced uh, uh, the disposition that they're going to back down on a following lawsuit and not pursue that. And so, um, you know, we'll see if that changes, um, you know, in the coming months. Um, but to your point, though, you know, the, the force and strength of Garrett, it really is just, uh, you know, morally terrifying. You know, we really uh, think about the force that he hit Rudolph with that helmet and uh, just, you know, unfathomable. And to your point earlier about the lack of stability within the Cleveland Browns organization, I think that that is a great point. Uh, Freddie Kitchens, I think, is uh, a good offensive mind, but I never thought that he was the right coach for this organization. Uh, they talked to Mike McCarthy last offseason, and I thought about it this week. I really think that he would be the ideal candidate for this position. And McCarthy was apparently somewhat interested in the job after being fired by the Packers, but the non-negotiable point was that the Browns wanted McCarthy to hire Kitchens as his offensive coordinator, and McCarthy did not want to do that. He wanted you know, his own guy to uh, start fresh. And I really think the Browns would be a best served based on how their season has played out, and most importantly, the way players are acting. To start fresh, bring in a name like McCarthy to bring some stability to that franchise. You know, a guy that has been with the Green Bay Packers organization, one of the best uh, organizations in professional sports, and bring that level of accountability, discipline, professionalism. Instability, What's well, right, Joe, because what, what it is right now is you got the inmates running the asylum at Cleveland. You have all these amazingly talented players. They may be, in terms of skill possessions, positions, the most talented team in the NFL right now. I mean, when you're talking about OBJ, Jarvis Landry, Baker Mayfield, Kareem Hunt, uh, Nick Chubb, I mean, just loaded, and then Miles Garrett on the other side. But the problem is that they're not meshing together because they have no discipline. They're playing for themselves, not as a team. And if you can get a coach in this discipline area, then you could have yourself a well-to-will machine that would be one of the best teams in the NFL. Unfortunately, right now, it doesn't seem like the players respect Freddie Kitchens. And instead, they're doing stuff like drilling quarterbacks with eight seconds left in the game when they're up by two touchdowns. So... You know, I hate it because I wanted Freddie Kitchens to succeed. I mean, I kind of thought it was a cool story with a guy from Alabama that was a very average Crimson Tide quarterback and 
kind of a country dude. I mean, he dips during interviews, you know, and he's got his little, like, slang to him. And he seems like a really likable guy, but unfortunately it doesn't seem like his players respect him and want to cooperate. No, it does not seem that way at all. And I think that um, the analogy I told you earlier in the week is that the Browns need to take a page out of the, the Los Angeles Clippers book in recent years. You know, the Clippers had a talented team with Chris Paul and Blake Griffin and others, and they decided, you know, that they needed a coach with more stability, with more experience, like Doc Rivers. They brought him in, and admittedly, there's still been some growing pains, but Rivers is still there. Some of the players have left, and, uh, you know, they brought in guys like Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, and they're now a championship contender. So I think the Browns, you know, could help um, the players that are on the team now by bringing in a more experienced coach with discipline and also be better in the long haul. I think so too, Joe. And I think that if you bring somebody in next year, then maybe Cleveland can finally break that uh, playoff drought next season with all the talent they have. You know, maybe if you're a Browns fan, you can wish for my dream scenario that I just created in my mind that Belichick coaches out one more uh, Super Bowl with Brady this year. They now have seven, which is, you know, it's more than even Saban has in college. Uh, now you're two more than any other franchise has ever had. Brady retires, and Belichick goes back to the Browns where he began at to show that he is the greatest coach of all time because he could win at Cleveland with an ego truck. There you go. You can hope for that as a Browns fan because it does make sense in a really ridiculous way. That would be, you, you want to talk about a story. I mean, they just have to decide, you know, whether what was a bigger day, LeBron returning to Cleveland or Bill Belichick. <laughs> I, think, I think Belichick returning to Cleveland would be a bigger day than LeBron. Mm-hmm. At least the Cavs have kind of been close a couple times before, you know, with LeBron. But uh, the Browns haven't done anything since Jim Brown was there back in the 60s. So I think it would be a bigger story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Joe, speaking of teams that haven't done well in a while, uh, not quite as long as the Browns, but, you know, when you and I were kids, you had two programs in the NFL, right? You had the Cowboys, but then on the other side of the of the U.S., you had the 49ers. I mean, they were an institution. Joe Montana, uh, more Steve Young when we were kids. And then, of course, Jerry Rice and Garrison Hurst, and they were just a solid program. And they were a team that every year you thought could win the Super Bowl. It was just there. And they went away for a long time. Then Jim Harbaugh came, and they made that one Super Bowl, and they had a great defense. And, of course, they ripped the hearts out of us Saints fans in that one game. But then when Harbaugh left, they went, a, they went away, and they've been a bad program for a long time. Suddenly right now the 49ers are the best team in the NFL. Uh, they're balanced. They got a good quarterback play with Garoppolo. Fantastic defense right now. Of course, adding in D four defensive end, great D line, and right now, I mean, they finally lost their first game uh, last uh, two weeks ago, and then almost lost the Cards uh, last week. But they're playing the Packers right now, which have had a little bit of a renaissance season with Aaron Rodgers. What do you see in this game that could be a game that, that really helps with playoff seeding in the NFC? I mean, you said it is key for playoff seeding because the 49ers are 9-1 and the Packers are 8-2. And And so the winner of this game uh, puts themselves in first place right now in the NFC. 
And it's important to us as Saints fans, you know, the outcome of this game with the Saints set to play the 49ers uh, next month in New Orleans. Um, I think that with the game being in uh, San Francisco, that's very interesting. You know, Aaron Rodgers, of course, played his college football at Cal Berkeley. Um, and, of course, we all remember, you know, that in the 2005 NFL drafts, the 49ers had a number one pick. That shows not Aaron Rodgers, but Alex Smith. And um, I think that Kyle Shanahan, what he's done with the 49ers this year has been uh, phenomenal. I thought that was just a fantastic hire a couple of years ago. He was the secret weapon behind uh, the emergence of Matt Ryan and that offense. They've never been the same in Atlanta since he left after the Super Bowl loss. I think that Kyle Shanahan is a great coach. Um, but I also think that the Packers, you know, with their new head coach, they've been really steady this year. Aaron Rodgers is so experienced. Um, so I think it's just kind of a battle. Like everybody's going to talk about Garoppolo versus Rodgers, and Rodgers is, you know, proven success versus uh, Garoppolo and his emerging talent. But the matchup that I'm most interested to see, I think, is Aaron Rodgers against uh, the 49ers defense with guys like Richard Sherman. Yeah, I think so too, Joe. I'll, I'll look at this as more of a Rodgers versus the 49ers defense as well because the one thing that the Packers have been weak in for basically the whole time that Aaron Rodgers has been there is they've never really seen they've had a very good offensive line. I feel like you see so many seasons where Aaron Rodgers has been fighting for his life back there to even get a pass off. And last year, especially when he got injured. And this year, they've been a little bit better about it, but they haven't really played a defense like the 49ers. I mean, on every level, they have playmakers. When you're talking about D4, you're talking about Richard Sherman. And I think that this is going to be the most pressure that Aaron Rodgers has faced all night, uh, all year so far. And I really want to see the matchup with the Packers' offensive line and keeping players away from Rodgers. And if Rodgers still has the mobility to get away from what's going to be a constant pass rush in this game. Mm-hmm. And the game is eerily similar to me um, to the matchup two weeks ago when the Seahawks traveled to uh, San Francisco because you have you know a quarterback like Russell Wilson, an MVP candidate, you know going in there and giving everything he had, and they squeak out that win. The Seahawks do in overtime on a last-second field goal. You know Aaron Rodgers can he uh, put forth that Herculean effort? and put the team on his back. I think that's what he would be required to do to win this matchup on the road. Um, at the end of the day, I think I'm going to go San Francisco. Possibly Aaron Rodgers will make me regret that he has a vintage performance. But I like San Francisco's defense. And I think that Garoppolo, there's just not as much pressure in this game for him to do too much. As long as Garoppolo does not commit um, some turnovers in key situations, I think San Francisco can win this game. Yeah, Joe, I like San Francisco in this game as well because, I mean, I said it from top to bottom. I think they are the best team in the NFL in terms of their balance. I mean, they're just good everywhere. There's not any weaknesses in them. And I'll tell you what their team kind of reminds me of. It reminds me of, like, early Alabama Nick Saban teams where they just play great defense and they run kind of a conservative run play-action offense but doesn't make a lot of mistakes and just grinds you down. And so there's not really as much on Garoppolo, and he can hit his big tight ends. He can hand the ball off. 
and he doesn't have to throw for 400 yards to the win. And unfortunately, I think Aaron Rodgers, you're right, is going to have to have one of those 350, 400-yard, five the passing TD games to win because the Packers' defense is not even in the same hemisphere as what the 49ers have. Mm-hmm. Who would you rather win as a Saints fan in this game? Well, Joe, to be honest, I think I'd rather have the 49ers win because I don't think the Saints play the Packers. And if we get the Packers a third loss, then that means that if we beat the 49ers, assuming we went out up to that point, that we would yet again be the number one seed and the Packers having three losses. And because I'm not really sure how the tiebreakers work, let's say that the Packers were to win, they would have two losses like the Saints, and then it would come down to some level of tiebreaker that I haven't really researched yet. So I think I like it better if the 49ers win. Yeah, I think the tiebreaker between the Saints and Packers would be the fewest losses in the NFC. Because I remember back in that 49ers game in the 2011 playoffs, we also had the same record as the 49ers. We were both 13-3, and but they won the silly tiebreaker with a better NFC record. And so... I think you're right. You know, you don't want to have to go to Green Bay in the postseason, so let them get that third loss and then beat the 49ers, and then, um, you know, we, we could be in the driver's seat for the NFC. Yeah, Joe, I mean, let, let's say that uh, if we had to be the second-place team to somebody, I would much rather be the 49ers because – I mean, the Saints have shown time in, time out that when they have to go to a cold weather game, which San Francisco would be cold, but it wouldn't be cold like Green Bay, they don't they do not do well in the playoffs. And so if the Saints had to play a road game in Lambeau Field in the playoffs, if it's snowing especially, just count that as a W for the pack. The Saints aren't going to win. It's not going to do it because they don't play it ever. So that, that's definitely a team that we don't want to have home field advantage to have to play just purely from a weather standpoint. Yeah. Good point. Uh, you know, speaking of the Saints, uh, they had a nice win over the Bucks this weekend. I really thought they did everything they needed to. Really kind of a good, complete uh, Saints win. Oh, the defense played great. Uh, forced a lot of turnovers from Jameis Winston, which I'm going to get into a little bit uh, more in a second. And then I thought the offense had a good effort where not the best start, kind of like what they've done lately, but after that, really balanced attack. You got Kamara back. He had some good rushes and a lot of catches. Of course, Michael Thomas still got his, what, 15-plus catches, over 140 yards. And then you had a good mix of getting Latavius Murray in. And I thought Ted Ginn caught a lot more passes and seemed to be more of a part of the offense this weekend. And I really thought on both sides of the ball, probably one of the more complete games the Saints have played this year. Yeah, they were really good in all aspects of the game. And I was nervous without Marshawn Lattimore, how they would play defensively. But they had four interceptions. You know, they, they played really well on that side of the ball. And then offensively for the Saints, just very efficient. Um, Breeze only throws for 228 yards, but he only had seven incompletions. I think he was like 28 or 35. And Alvin Kamara getting going, I thought that was key because there have been a lot of games this year where he's just been pedestrian offensively. He's been injured a lot. And he had, I think, arguably his best game as far as, you know, putting up yards this season, at least the best. I think he's looked since uh, week one against the Texans. And so if you have him going to complement the passing game with Michael Thomas 
and you're, then you're right, getting other players involved like Jen. Um, I think that this was more of an example of what this Saints team is and can be, and it was uh, it made me feel a lot better. Um, you know, being able to kind of put away the Falcons' loss is more of a fluke. Well, Joe, you know what I found from watching this game is uh, this whole season being an Auburn fan is I always like watching the defense more because it's the better side of the ball. But the Saints this year, it's the same way. I mean, watching their defense is, I mean, it's like watching art on film. They're that good. Uh, that interception that Demario Davis made where he leapt over the guy when it was in the air and caught it. I don't know if I've ever seen a linebacker make an interception like that. Maybe not since uh, Carlos Dainsby uh, back in Auburn when he caught out of bounds and threw it into another guy. I mean, it was an amazing play, and I've been so impressed with Demario Davis. Uh, he was good last year, but this season, I think he has a, a an argument to maybe even be like a defensive MVP type player because he really is just showing out right now. And, I mean, he he's, seems to be the leading tackler every game, and he's just making incredible plays. No, absolutely. And I root for him especially because he's kind of a local guy uh, from Brandon, Mississippi, right outside of Jackson, and really a late bloomer. Um, he actually went to the same high school as Gardner Minshew. Um, he's several years older than Minshew. He's our age. But uh, he's a guy that played in a small college, I uh, think somewhere in Arkansas, maybe Arkansas Pine Bluff. I can't really remember. And uh, he's just really emerged the last two seasons with the Saints. Yeah, he seems like a really good dude off the field, too. I know he does a lot of charitable work and kind of an outspoken, uh, you know, believer, too. So I just think he's like such a great guy to, like, want to support. And I've been so happy with what he can do. But right now with what he and what Cam Jordan and Marshawn Lattimore and the rest of that defense have been doing. And uh, another person I, I noticed uh, – that started playing really good uh, was that the linebacker from Oregon, uh, Achille, I'm trying to think of what his name is, but it was the first time I really noticed him playing really good for the Saints because I remember him being a pretty high draft pick and we, he went away for a few years, but I saw him doing what, you know, he was, he was drafted for and why it was such a big deal when he came out of Oregon. So another good player for the Saints in the linebacker position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And Marcus Williams had a big six. You know, I've been impressed with how he's been able to turn around his career and, you know, recover, you know, from the playoff wonder a couple of years ago. He's yeah. playing really good football. Yeah, that was a great pick six that he made at the end of that game. Um, but, yeah, so, I mean, I thought that was a really good win for the Saints. And on the flip side, I don't see right now, I heard, like, all this talk about how Bruce Arian with the, the Bucs loves Jameis Winston. Why? I mean, why would you – they're coming up for, on the, the decision of whether to keep him around for a next contract after his rookie contract. Why would you pay that guy the money to be your quarterback and surely what he's going to ask for in terms of a second contract with you? I mean, the guy's been a train wreck in the NFL, and it just seems to get worse and worse, and he turns it over with, like, reckless abandon. And I understand the guy's got a lot of talent, but he's had, what, Joe, four years to capitalize on some of that talent? I think it's time that you cut the ties because he's not a good player off the field. And if you're not going to be a good player off the field, then you better be a great player on the field. And he's not doing it. And he just turns it over so much. He's bad for the team. And when I was watching that game, I was like, man, the Bucks have they got some talent on offense. I mean, they got Mike Evans. He's not getting the ball enough. 
Uh, you know, the running backs seem to be improving a little bit. Peyton Barber's pretty good running back. Uh, and they have some guys in the receiver position. They can help them out. But unfortunately, Jameis Winston just isn't an NFL starting quarterback right now. And I think the Bucks could potentially be a playoff team if they had a good quarterback. Yeah, I mean, Winston has been just so turnover-prone. And you look back at that 2015 draft, just so disappointed, you know, in the trajectory of both he and Mariota, as far as their careers thought that, you know, they're going to be a lot more than what they've been. And yes, uh, Winston has put up some gaudy numbers as far as passing yards over the years. But one statistic I've noticed about um, his completions is that his numbers throwing the ball are very inefficient. You know, I talked about Breeze only having seven incompletions, throwing the ball 35 times. Winston has so many games like he did Sunday against the Saints where he'll throw the ball over 50 times to get 300 yards and then have three or four picks. And that's never a recipe for winning football in the NFL. We have numbers like that. Yeah, Joe, the games that Jameis Winston has that are good games would be kind of like what Tua had against LSU, where you throw it for 50 times, you complete barely 50% of your passes, you have a couple turnovers, and then you get like four touchdowns. But you're right, that's not consistent. That's not a way you win the game. Alabama didn't win that game, and the Bucs don't win many games when you get a lot of yards, but you also give up a lot of turnovers and throw a lot of incompletions. So, yeah, that, that tends to be the way that James does put up big yards. Yeah, I think the Buck needs to stop here this year for Winston and move on to new quarterback. Well played. I like that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Joe, speaking of the Buck, we're uh, Bucks in this circumstance. Uh, the NCAA just went ahead and suspended uh, Wiseman from over in Memphis. Really been kind of an interesting story. Uh, his now coach, Penny Hardaway, who was – not his coach at the time, but I guess will be qualified as a Memphis booster, paid for all of his moving expenses from his high school in Nashville over to Memphis, 11500 worth. And instead of uh, bowing down like most teams do and taking the NCAA punishment and the suspension, he actually filed a lawsuit and got an injunction to let him play. Uh, for some reason last week, though, he dropped it, and now it seems like he's facing a, a suspension for a while. What do you think about the story? And it's fascinating. I mean, just the defiance against the NCAA initially, and then they kind of relent and give in, and then the NCAA comes down with their penalty. I actually expected him to be suspended for more than 11 games. I mean, it's really astonishing to me if he will be eligible to play early on in the conference schedule for Memphis on, I think, January 12th um, against, I believe, Wichita State. And uh, this is a team with Memphis that had the number one recruiting class with guys like Wiseman, and so if they can make the NCAA tournament, they're definitely a team, you know, that can make a lot of noise. And so I think that Memphis knew that they had to be highly invested in this season with Wiseman going to be a run and done. But uh, what I find interesting about the penalty, you and I were talking about this before the show, is that in addition to the suspension of 11 games, uh, Wiseman will have to pay $11,500 to the charity of his choice very curious where that money will come from. Um, I think he's going to get a couple pennies from Penny Hardaway on this one to pay it off, just like he did with his moving expenses. Because how is that dude supposed to have just 11500 just sitting around? 
Now, you could have a former NBA all-star that's your coach that has millions and millions of dollars to give you a little bit, then maybe you could pay it off that way. Would that be a suspension for illegally paying off a penalty? <laughs> I think the NCAA would have to come up with that. Uh, we said I had to pay it back, so how else let's pay it back? So now he's going to get, like, double charged with it. You know what's interesting, Joe? We talk about all the time how, you know, how flip-flop-ish the NCAA is, how inconsistent they are. You think that maybe they were just sick of the story and, and they didn't want people to do what he was doing and they just made a free secret phone call with him and Penny Hardaway. They're like, hey, 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 listen, if you uh if you agree to drop this uh this injunction, which a lot of people can do, anybody can technically do this, and we don't want them to do it, we'll just suspend you for eleven games, it's not that big a deal, and, and we'll just drop this whole thing because you're making us look stupid. I mean, it's quite possible, especially when you have a talent like Wiseman. I mean, if he doesn't play the rest of the season, I mean, that's tough on ratings in college basketball. This is the most relevant the Memphis basketball program has been since John Calipari was there. And a talent like Wiseman, you want to see him in the NCAA tournament. Yeah, I think so, too. And I really just think that the NCAA didn't want to have more people thinking about what Wiseman did, and they wanted to end the narrative, I think. So I think that's another reason that maybe you're seeing this. Yeah. Uh, you know, really interesting show right here, especially talking about uh, the NCAA, which Joe and I always love to talk about and talk about how stupid they are generally with the decisions they make. Uh, and want to thank everyone that we have that listened to our show tonight. Um, you can see us on Spotify. All of our old episodes are uploaded on it. If you want to look up the Dana Joe Sports Show on Spotify, you'll find our old episodes. You can also uh, like us on Facebook at the Dana Joe Sports Show uh, fan page. And then also follow us on Twitter at DJ Sports Show. And as always, thank you for listening. And I'm Ben. Dana yeah, Joe.